You are listening to the first of what will hopefully be multiple episodes of 1066 Wasn't All That, an independent podcast about new research in history and related fields. I'm Victoria Stiles, and today I'm joined by Ben Wilcock, a PhD student in history at the University of Manchester. Hello, Ben. Hello, Vicky. Thank you for agreeing to do this for me. Can you just kick off by briefly telling everybody what it is you're researching? I certainly can. Thank you very much for having me on this uh, this first podcast. Um, so my research is on the supply and demand of luxury goods in the 18th century Northwest. So really I'm looking at Manchester and Liverpool, which are two cities that have previously mainly been studied in the 19th century. And I'm looking to see what made them kind of sophisticated networks for trade um, before industrialization, really. Okay, and we are very sophisticated up here, I can say that. Certainly are, yeah. <laughs> so apart from the fact that it's it's been looked at in a different century, um, what else is it that we don't know about this topic? Well, I think there are people who have worked on the 18th century Northwest, and they've done um, a really, really good job, but there's so few of them, really. And considering uh, Manchester in particular was, was the fastest growing city in the period, um, it's it's perhaps surprising that there's not that much research that currently exists on uh, kind of urban development and the way streets developed and the commercial history of these two towns, Manchester and Liverpool. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there's anything particularly wrong with the research that currently exists, just there's not enough of it in my eyes, uh, which is good for me because it obviously means that I get to uh, get first dibs on a lot of the uh, information, but, um, but bad for history generally, maybe. Yes. So what, what are the sort of sources that you're looking at then and what are you doing with them? Well, my thesis is made up of four distinct chapters um, and I use different sources for each chapter. So the first one kind of maps the streets of Manchester and Liverpool and has a look at where the um, luxury districts for shopping were. So the sources that I'm using there are things like town plans and um, corporation improvement acts. Um, so quite quite dry things but I kind of um, it, it's nice to kind of compare those with trade directories where you can kind of put where where the shops were on, on these maps and for the first time we've got a kind of pretty comprehensive idea of what shops could be found on, on what streets so for the first chapter it's mainly maps and trade directories uh, when I go on in later chapters to talk about suppliers and consumers then I'm looking at people's uh, business account books and their personal account books uh, and I'm trying to kind of identify patterns between types of consumers, where they lived, what their kind of social background were. Um, so for for those chapters, I'm I'm looking at personal testimonies, uh, letters, receipts, account books. And when I'm looking at suppliers, I spend a lot of my time kind of trawling through 18th century advertisement pages in um in newspapers, which uh, which are a mixed bag. Sometimes they're very very dry. Sometimes they're they're pretty good. Yeah, I've, I've had a look at a few advertisements in newspapers from, from that era just because I have access through the university databases and who wouldn't go and look at that stuff when it's all there. Why, why would you not, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I'm always surprised about how much information they pack into their adverts, sort of listing pretty much everything they're selling that week. That's true, and I think that's, that's really important when you're looking at shops and especially when you're looking at high-end shops because a lot of my... Um, people who advertise 
are saying, okay, come to our shop. We're on one of the finest streets in Manchester. Here you can buy uh, you can buy flowers, you can buy tea, you can buy coffee, uh, you can buy medicine. And you're right, that the, the lists that they put um, in the newspapers are so kind of comprehensive that, it, that for us today, it's, uh, it, it's quite unusual. But obviously this is a time before the department store and before the supermarket. So um, variety really was the spice of life for for shopkeepers so you had to kind of show that you had all these quite new products on sale and um, one of the things that you see a lot of in the newspaper advertisements is people are advertising things um, at London prices so whereas previously historians have um, suggested a kind of model of provincial emulation where where provincial shopkeepers will say oh we've got all these uh, really fashionable London products um, what I found in Manchester and Liverpool that they're, they're not so much looking to London as a kind of centre for fashion, but more they just want to make sure that they're getting the same goods at the same price as London. So it's almost as if uh, Northerners are quite canny with their pockets, I guess. But um, yeah, they're, they're certainly more interested in in the best deal that can be got rather than the fashions of London. But yeah, you're definitely right. There's a lot of material that historians can read into from what on the face of it, seem like quite dry advertisement pages of newspapers. So what are some of the other um, revelations that you had? Okay, so I expected when I went into this project that Manchester and Liverpool would kind of, their their development would be very similar, just because they're geographically close. They're both uh, towns that really, really grew throughout the 18th century. And so I was expecting their kind of markets and their... um, their kind of modes and timescale of development to be very similar, but I found that not to be not to be true really. Uh, Liverpool is is a bit sniffy about Manchester at the time because Liverpool was a much more established city in terms of um, trade and industry, whereas Manchester was was a kind of child of the 18th century. It kind of uh, grew from a village to a kind of massive cottonopolis. Good word. Uh, yeah, very good word. Not my <laughs> word, unfortunately. Uh, and also a 19th century word. So, <laughs> so unfortunately, that's that's not a word that will make it into my thesis. But uh, yeah, so that there are there are big differences between Manchester and Liverpool that I wasn't expecting to find, but um, but I think are are really interesting, and they just really highlight for me the importance of kind of regional case studies and for historians to kind of look at towns in detail. So if if you're writing about a region, you you can't really talk about the northwest. You have to kind of look at the different cities and and, and towns, and centres for trade that are there, and and kind of work out what was going on and and why really. That's one of the things that I really want my uh, thesis to address. I think there has been a tendency for historians to kind of group together all the provinces against London when looking at the 18th century. When I think it's a much more complex picture that we need to kind of dissect by putting the primary research into individual case studies of towns and, and regions and then drawing conclusions from, from that primary research. Following on from that, um, I know it used to be that if I thought about traders and businesses um, at that time, I automatically pictured it as a man's world. But then I saw you give a paper a while back that really knocked that on the head. Um, so can you say a bit about the women in your sources? Oh, well, I'm really pleased to have turned your uh, your perception <laughs> around on the basis of a seminar paper. It's very kind of you to say that. Yeah. Um, so in when you look at Manchester and Liverpool, you, you do find that a lot of the businesses are kind of headed by women and that women took a very active role in shaping the commercial environment. I'm thinking especially of someone called Elizabeth Raffold. 
she was from Salford, um, and she became one of the key players in Manchester and, and Salford's commercial development in the 18th century. For me, she's a really useful source because um, she was the first person who wrote a kind of comprehensive trade directory of Manchester. Um, so I use her work a lot, but she was she was a maverick, really. She um, she kind of published books on uh, midwifery and housekeeping. She had six or seven different business concerns in Manchester. Uh, I think she had a crazy number of children, more, more than 10 children. Uh, and she was a she was a really kind of big figure in Manchester. And she died, at, I think, 46 or 47. Um, so she had a pretty full life and she's a really useful case study. Because she's so useful, she has been studied before by um, by quite a few people, but I'm using her in a different way. I'm, I'm kind of um, not really writing about what a remarkable woman she was. I'm really writing about what a remarkable business person she was and, and how uh, she kind of shaped the way that we can now read Manchester as an 18th century town. So in terms of sort of life as a PhD student, what is it that you found most difficult and do you have any advice that you could offer to other PhD students or people setting out on research? Okay, I think doing a PhD can be a really, really lonely thing. Um, it, by, by the very nature of it, you're kind of sitting in an archive a lot of the time uh, by yourself working on a project that only you and your supervisor really know or care about. Um, so you do have to really make an effort to kind of uh, meet people and um, and kind of talk to other people who are going through a kind of similar similar situation. So yeah, making making friends is something that I found hard when I first came to Manchester because I didn't do my masters at Manchester and also I was a January starter, so I started pretty much on my own. So I um, so I, I I had to make the effort to kind of find where people were working, where the PhD office was, and things like that. So. That's a piece of advice, like go out of your way to kind of make friends because it doesn't have to be as lonely as it first um, appeared. Also, I think I'm, I'm a, I started my PhD as a full time student, um, but I work as well. Um, and then in my third year, I switched to part time and I just wish that I had always been a part time PhD student. Um, I think I spent the first two years kind of uh, disappointing my supervisor because I would overpromise um, what I could deliver, and then I'd hand in my work, and she would say, "Oh, actually, this isn't really what you said you were going to be able to um, produce at this stage." So I think just be completely honest with yourself. If you think that you um, like, it is. I think it's better to start part time and then switch to full time than than the way that I did it. So be completely honest about the time that you're going to be able to devote to writing and um, be honest with your supervisor as well. Don't overpromise things that you you might not be able to, to do. You're definitely not alone in that. No. Um, <laughs> I keep thinking of it as I keep promising my supervisors that I will pull a rabbit out of a hat for them and I keep you know, producing toads and yeah, that's exactly right. Deformed, deformed monstrosities in, instead of rabbits. Quite recently, I had a look at my sent folder and, and, and all the um, emails I'd sent my supervisor um, over the past kind of six months or something. And eight out of ten of them started with an apology. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, oh, my God, I must be a terrible PhD student. But when I speak to anyone else, they're like, oh, yeah, that's the same for me as well. So, yeah, the two pieces of advice were be honest with yourself and be honest with your supervisor and also just talk to people. And you'll realize that you're not the only person who's going through the um, 
the problems that you've got. Also, uh, a third piece of advice, if you find yourself too busy, um, then don't write about it on Facebook. Because if you have time to write about how busy you are on Facebook, I don't think you are busy enough. And nobody likes it and everyone rolls their eyes. That's a personal bugbear for me. There is nothing worse than overproductive people yeah. <laughs> on Facebook making yeah. the rest of us look bad. Yeah. Um, so finally, is there, apart from the word Cottonopolis, is there <laughs> anything else fantastic that sadly isn't going to fit into your thesis? Oh, there are lots of things, actually. The 18th century is really, really interesting. I, uh, the people are weird but brilliant and... Um, yeah, there are lots of things that I find myself kind of delighting in in archives that I don't think I'm going to be able to um, include in my thesis. First of all, all the names that people have. Um, so in my thesis, I've got people called Orly McCauley, and uh, there's a guy called Sir Harbord Harbord, and there's a bishop called Bialby Porteous. And although they have these brilliant names, they're not particularly interesting, with the exception of Orly McCauley. Um, so I don't know if they're, they're going to be able to make it into my uh, thesis. Also, there's this um, really big rivalry between someone called Lady Drake and Lady Bland. And they are these brilliant old ladies, one from Salford, one from Manchester, one Protestant, one Catholic. One is a Jacobite, one is a Hanoverian. And they're they're of a very similar social scale. And they keep having these arguments that come up in secondary sources quite a lot, even 18th century secondary sources. But I've not been able to find anything about their kind of... Um, shopping habits or I've not found an account book for either of them so unfortunately I'm just going to have to let let them go I think. So a lot of the kind of gossip that was going on in Manchester and Liverpool in the 18th century um, I don't think will be able to easily fit into my thesis. I might try. At least it sounds like there's lots of material there for future projects. There is yeah yeah so um, so yeah hopefully if the thesis goes well there'll, there'll be um, there'll be things to write about afterwards. Super. All right, Ben. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to be my first victim, and I'm looking forward to reading more about this in the not-too-distant future. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. If you'd like more information about the topics covered on this podcast, or if you'd like to talk about your own research or suggest a guest, then visit 1066podcast.blogspot.com. See you next time. The hell was that? <laughs> well, uh, sorry, that wasn't flatulence. That was my phone vibrating. I'm just gonna turn it. I am just going to turn it off for uh, this interview. <laughs> <laughs> if that happens again, I'll I'll just claim it was flatulence. <laughs> well, I it, uh, my cat is also running around, but I'll um I'll lock him in the back.